You're tuned into that deity, though. Let the assembly know we worship God in the flesh. His name is Jesus, you know. Oh, we can open the word. This is the truth we can show. Planting a seed in your brain. Trust in a prayer for the grow. The Son of God is the Most High. When that don't fly, they come at my neck like a bow tie. <laughs> From the throne to the manger, the mystery of God sent Himself as the Savior. Welcome to episode 8 of That Deity Though, an apologetics podcast focused on the deity of Christ and the Trinity. I am your host, E.C. Holmes. You already know that's my real name. As usual, what I want to do is just begin by saying thank you to everyone who's been listening and sticking along for the ride. This is new. This is a new outlet. This is the beginning of, I think, the fifth month since I've been doing this. So if you've been here since the beginning, thank you. Um, If this is your first time taking a peek in, I appreciate it. There's tons of good resources out there that you could be listening to. So I appreciate you stopping by just to listen in on the topic for today. Um, I've been hearing that the content has been helpful. It's been encouraging people and motivating them to share the gospel and that's what we're here to do on future episodes i do want to maybe get into some um, tactics on on you know maybe helping you to uh, have conversations with other people showing you how to stay focused on topic um, to not get defensive to to lead the discussion to be offensive about it sharing the different types of apologetics how each of them apply in different scenarios i think all of them are helpful Actually, I wanted to begin this episode by sharing one of my favorite arguments for the existence of God. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to share that another time, maybe the next episode. Um, It's really a simple argument, but it takes some time to unpack. But what I want to do for this episode is I kind of want to just dive right into it. But first, of course, make sure you like, share, comment, subscribe, all of that good stuff to the podcast. You can write me directly. And when I get a chance, I will respond. You can do that by emailing us at thatdeity though at gmail.com or inboxing us on social media but before we get into the main topic of the day i do want to share some brief thoughts in respect to where we find ourselves in history Uh, and i hope by the end of this episode that you're reminded and you're encouraged to rest in god right he is sovereign he's in complete control even in the midst of all this chaos right when when you seem to have no control over your situation um here in america it's no secret that we're facing a major crisis many have expressed their disdain for our country and its leadership and many places in our nation the little hope that was left have been stripped away as a result of many things some say it's systemic others say it's self-induced the left blames the right the right blames the left right some say it's a racial issues and others say that it's you know it's just a media hoaxed but one thing is clear regardless of the side of the aisle you stand on we have a problem we don't all agree as to the extent or the solution of that problem but we're unified in the recognition that here in america we're far from where we ought to be as a country and as a nation and i have a lot of thoughts on these issues and i may or may not touch on them in future episodes because um at least where i'm at right now i don't think it would be a fruitful uh discussion as far as where i want to take the conversation and i don't even know if my heart is in the right place to lead that discussion at this time so i guess we'll see 
But what I would like to do, um, since I have the opportunity um, to have your air for a little bit, is to share some, to shine some light um, in a dark time and to send some encouragement to my brothers and sisters in the faith. I want to remind everyone we are one body with varying degrees of melanin. That's it. Some Democrats, others Republicans, and there are many other ways in which we choose to identify. However, none of these designations can hold a candle to the unity that ought to be found in Christ. Our unity in Christ is much stronger than what divides us, right? At least that's the biblical standard. But are we standing on that? Um, if we allow these things to divide us, we have an idol and we must violently tear it down and destroy it. We should not look like the world, right? That has no place among the people of God. Now that faith has come, right, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise that's galatians 3 25 through 29 i just want to remind everyone that the the unity that we have lies beneath our very dna beneath the core of who we are and if our lens comes from anything other than our position in christ we will always always every single time we will have a flawed view as we look at the world and the church as we look at our neighbors and even as our brothers at our brothers and sisters in the faith um joshua 5 13 through 14 says when joshua was by jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing before him with his sword drawn right with his drawn sword in his hand and joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face, right? Fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? What is the Lord saying to his servants during this time? Are we listening? Or are we so caught up in the moment that we haven't stopped to think about God's hand in this time? Have we asked God about what we ought to be learning or what we ought to be doing? Or are we fighting for our own side, right? You know, the side that we attach ourselves to, our ethnicity or politically. Do we want God to fight on our side or to show the world that he is on our side, right? Remember, Joshua asked the angels, whose side are you on? Ours or theirs? He didn't pick either side. He said, no, that he is the commander of God's army, the army of the Lord. And that's the only side that the Lord takes is his own side. And that's the side that we should identify with, right? The side of truth, the side of justice, the side of mercy and grace, the side of love. But as defined by the nature of God consistently across the board and for the purpose of his glory. So today what I'm going to do is share a sermon that I preached at my church earlier this year, a sermon about gospel joy in the midst of great trial and even oppression, if that's what you believe that you're experiencing right now. But it really doesn't matter what side you stand on as far as this issue is concerned. Um, it doesn't matter which side you stand on. If Christ isn't the foundation, you will fall and great will be your 
fall. So stand firm in Christ, trusting that God is working all things. And these problems that take away hope from the world are building blocks. They're the building blocks of our being conformed into the image of Christ. Christian, this is your sanctification. And the spread, often the instrument, the propeller of his gospel, right, is trials and tribulation, right? So don't lose heart. Be encouraged. And I hope to do that for you today to be an encouragement and to be a reminder of where our hope lies. So let's jump into our topic of the day, providential joy in the gospel of Christ. He is Lord, so we reign. Open up the word, get with it. The eternal God, he is infinite. He put on some flesh and then lived in it. The hypostatic union, we get it. Christology, my apology, but no apology. Let's get with it. Well, then the prodigy, buddy, calm the seas. He quiet storms, yes, he did it. Uh, he's preeminent, taught fishermen to fish from men. Turn grimy dudes to different men. It's by his life we live for him. And through his life we get to him. Validated by lifting him. And he would do the same for everyone to whom he was sent. Blazing it, fanning the flame. It's no taming it, grabbing his word and aiming it I don't care if you bang with it, repping the blood, no gang with it Add to it and you're changing it Paul said it's anathema even if an angel came with it Okay, good morning everybody I'm really excited about uh, this message I'm excited about the book of Philippians uh, Luke mentioned that it, it is a book or a letter about gospel joy um, and I found that to be true um, as I read through it a few times to kind of prepare um, and then continue to dig into the passage. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Um, and we're going to witness um, something that I believe is pretty remarkable. Um, and that's a testimony um, that comes from struggle, a testimony that comes from trial. Um, a testimony that reminds us that the joy of the believer is rooted in something and somewhere very different than what the world, um, what is, what the world might be used to. Um, and so I'm going to pray and just dive right into it. I don't want to waste too much time. Um, but Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us once again for worship um, as we fellowship with one another, um, as we gather around one God. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to worship you. Um, thank you for the time that we've had so far as we worship you through song. Um, and now help us as we worship through the preaching and the hearing of your word. Um, allow it to penetrate our hearts and to conform us to the image of your Son. And help us to live out um, this life that you've given us in a way that we show that we are grateful um, for what you have done in all circumstances. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, before we get right in, I just want to start out by asking a few questions. Um, one, have you ever heard the question, why does bad things happen to good people? I'm sure everyone's heard that question before. Second question, have you ever heard the phrase, everything happens for a reason? How about this one, when one door closes, another one opens. We all heard those type of phrases. Um, of course, what I'm not saying is that bad things don't happen to good people. I'm not even going to say that there isn't a reason that everything unfolds. We know this to be true. I mean, I'm not saying that better opportunities can't rise out of what may seem to be a dead end on the road to life. But at the same time, these statements, while coming off as hopeful, 
are actually rooted in chance and uncertainty, an empty hope in the hands of the universe or despair and anxiety from being weighed down by the deep questions of life. Why did someone take the life of your neighbor's child? Why did God allow something like that? Well, you know, sometimes bad things just happen to good people. Or, you know, everything happens for a reason. You see, when we make statements like this, it's not as beneficial as we think those statements are. Um, even when someone loses their job, it's probably not the best thing to say that, you know, when one door closes, another one opens, right? At least not in that moment. But what I'm getting at is oftentimes we look at life's problems, the trials and the tribulations of life as a negative. And I'm not saying that's not the normal response. We see that response all the time. But what I am saying is it's not a good response. It's not a response that reflects trust in God. It reflects a lack of trust. It reflects a lack of joy in God. Instead of seeing it as a means of all and the providence of God and necessary for sanctification. It's much easier to view issues as punishment or evidence of being outside of God's will. I mean, God wants us to have our best lives now, right? And that definitely doesn't include loss, right? Our best life now doesn't include poverty or struggle and not persecution, right? It doesn't include anything that doesn't have my own interest in mind. The negative is easier for many of us to accept over the fact that it is a trial from the Lord and for his own purposes. Even crazier to think that we should be joyful in the midst of these trials. Most if not every problem that man has with God stems from the reality that he is sovereign. We want the world to revolve around us as if it isn't God who keeps it in rotation to begin with. And the one who created it calls the shots. We get caught up in these situations because we fail to remember that we exist for God God does not exist for us. The creator is the sovereign power of attorney over all creation at all times. And God created with an intention and the purpose of his glory and the redemption of a people through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ will go forth. And as we experience this gracious gift, we are given a joy that surpasses all understanding and all circumstances. And for this reason, the title of my sermon is Providential Joy in the Gospel of Christ. So we'll begin reading at verse 12, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll read through to verse 18. <clears throat> I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so we're going to notice a few things in these, in these passages. I'm just going to give you three headings. <clears throat> One is the providence of God, once again. Um, this is a consistent truth that we see throughout the pages of Scripture from the beginning to end. The providence of God, we see that all the time, and so that's going to be the first heading. Um, number two is going to be the centrality of Christ, um, which also is affirmed from the first 
letter to the last letter of the Bible. We see Christ in the center of it all. And finally, we will see the praise of the believer. And so as we examine the providence of God, we will witness his hand in the unfolding of human affairs. Then we will see the centrality of Christ as the crown jewel of God's purposes. He is glorified in Christ. And finally, we will end where all theological discussion or study should bring us. When we think about the goodness of God in Christ and the fact that all things are working together for the good of those who are called and love him, there is a doxology or a praise in response to our great God. He alone is worthy to be praised. By the way, I just got a new job. He is worthy to be praised. <clears throat> My family's in good health. He's worthy to be praised. We attend a church that loves God and his people. He is worthy to be praised. But even if all of this blew up in our faces tomorrow, if we lose the job, if, if we lose a loved one, he is still worthy to be praised in the midst of it all. And so let's start with the providence of God. <clears throat> Paul is writing his brothers to inform them about his current situation. The brothers he's been praying for in verses 3 and 4, those who share in the partnership of the gospel, as he says in verse 5, those who are dear to his heart <clears throat> and share in the grace of God and have been working with him in gospel ministry, we see this in verse 7. And in verse 8, we see his affection for them as he expresses his yearning for them. He calls them brother. And notice this isn't based on ethnicity. This isn't based on nationality or political affiliation. It's not even based on emotions, right? He calls them brothers because they share in the grace of God and the gospel of Christ. We even see this in the way he greets them in verse two. He says, grace to you and peace from our God, our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a relationship that is rooted in and expressed in a shared faith and joy in the triune God of the Bible. He says, what has happened to me, in verse 12, has served. Well, what happened? Verse 13, my imprisonment. Paul is in prison and he says, what has happened to me has served. It's pretty interesting because it obviously isn't serving him, right? So who is it serving? Um, it's pretty interesting because there's people, even pastors, who would try to sell you on this idea that anything that isn't positive or isn't glamorous isn't a part of God's plan for your life. Well, you should know that Paul is here writing from a prison and his audience initially, at least, is this church in Philippi. And if you know anything about Philippi, you know it wasn't one of the nicest places to live. In the commentaries, you'll read that the likely demographics in Philippi, you had churches who were almost entirely non-Jewish, non-Roman, and impoverished perhaps joined by a few middle-class merchants, and the believers probably faced severe persecution and economic hardship, according to um, Faith Life Study Bible. Um, they weren't really living their best life now, at least not according to our standards. Um, and also, I wonder how ministries would read and exposit verses like 27 and 30, those ministries who teach that hardship isn't a part of God's plan for your life. If you read verse 27 through 30, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And I promise you that this isn't some new idea. This isn't a New Testament truth that's foreign from the Old Testament. We even find it throughout the Old Testament. You see it particularly in the Psalms. Um, one of the most favorite, famous Psalms, which is an acrostic poem, um, chapter 119. Um, starting at verse 67, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So you might stop and say, well, this person is afflicted because they haven't been following God. And this person's affliction led them to realize the need to follow the statutes and law of God. There's truth to that. However, when you read verse 75 in the same chapter, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And so while man, we often focus on having multiple streams of income, God has multiple streams of receiving glory. And afflictions are one of those streams that flow into the ocean of his glory. And so while trials are God's servants, the servants of God are not exempt from suffering. Paul is writing from a Roman prison, by the way, which is nothing like American prison. We get arrested for doing a crime and they put us in prison as our penalty. This is the punishment for the crime that we did. We have to serve time. But in a Roman prison, they were waiting for trial or execution. They weren't just staying there and they often used cisterns. Um, cistern, the rendering of a word from a Hebrew word, bor, which means a receptacle, for water conveyed to it, distinguished from bare, which denotes a place where water rises on the spot, a fountain. Cisterns are often mentioned in scripture. Um, the scarcity of springs in Palestine made it necessary to collect, to collect rainwater in reservoirs and cisterns. Empty cisterns were sometimes used as prisons, and we'll see that in Jeremiah 38 if you want to start turning there. The pit into which Joseph was cast was a bare or dry well. And there are numerous remains of ancient cisterns in all parts of Palestine, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary. <clears throat> now, in Jeremiah 38, verse 6, it gives us a little bit of an idea of what Paul may have been experiencing as he was in this Roman prison in Philippi. In verse 6, it says, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard letting Jeremiah down by ropes, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. And so out of the darkness, out of the mud, probably with a shivering hand, you have Paul seeking to encourage his brothers in that situation. His brothers who would probably been, would have loved to be in the place of encouraging him while he was in his affliction. But Paul says, actually my imprisonment is at God's service. In verse 16, he wrote, I was put here. This is a divine appointment from God for Paul. So not only are trials the servants of God, but so are evil men that are wishing to afflict the people of God. The brothers of Joseph, right? Remember, they threw him into the well, only to have him preserve the world from the coming famine. God gave him favor with the king and the ability to interpret dreams 
And he interpreted the dream that in the end would preserve Judah. If we remember, that's the line that our Savior had to come through. Now, did these actions take place apart from God's will, right? Is God sitting back playing a responsive role? Is he on the defense waiting to watch what the offense is going to do, right? Well, Genesis 50 gives us that answer, and I'll, I'll tell you it's no. Um, 15 through 20 in Genesis 50 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And here it goes at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Not God turned it into good, and he responded in a way, but what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's interesting, Paul was in this prison and he was comforting those who were in a more comfortable situation than he was. But as far as this goes in Genesis, this had to take place again in order for our Savior to come. Nothing exists outside of the providential sovereign will of God. And that goes for our trials or even those who seek to harm God's people. Not even those, as Philippians 1.15 says, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Or verse 17, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so God's reach cannot be hindered by man. Not even their evil intentions, even the evil intentions of man are gain for God's good purposes. And so even while being rebels against God, they are somehow serving to bring God glory. So Paul didn't see himself as being under the authority of the Roman guards, but under the authority of a sovereign God. He was appointed suffering and he was appointed oppression to serve as God's instrument. And so this brings us to the question, how? Right. Remember the first question, who is this trial serving? And we see the answer is this trial is serving God. The trials are God's servants and somehow even evil men who are in rebellion, they can't escape the sovereign hand of God. But how has this trial served? How has Paul's imprisonment served? How does a selfish preacher serve? This brings us to our second heading, which is the centrality of Christ. Let's go back to verse 12. What has happened to me, remember his imprisonment, has really served, well we know who it served, it served God, but how has it served? It has really served to advance the gospel. What this has really done is caused the gospel to go forth. Paul was in chains, but the gospel wasn't. Paul was in the dark, but the gospel shined forth. And while Rome made an attempt to suppress the truth of God's salvation in Christ, the gospel was amplified. Verse 13, even the imperial guard knew it. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so this captive man was given a captive audience, right? 
They thought they lit a match that would destroy the gospel. Instead, it exploded all over the Roman Empire. And the guards witnessed it firsthand. It has served to spread the good news concerning Jesus. Verse 14, what you would think might scare off other followers ended up building a stronger confidence in the Lord. Instead of cowering, other believers became bold and fearless. Not just to live quietly and speak when spoken to, not living out the gospel and using words only when necessary, but in verse 14, even though Imani corrected me while I was preparing, it actually says these believers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. She says, much more, you're not supposed to put those words together like that. <laughs> well, God does. He says, this trial has served God in the expansion of his gospel and the empowering of his people. But if you leave it to pseudo-scholarship, um, you'll believe that Christianity simply spread by the sword. You'll believe that Christianity spread by power and intimidation, that Christianity spread by the winners who control what we would believe about history. When in all actuality, Christianity spread despite the sword. Christianity spread in, in, uh, despite power and intimidation. Christianity spread despite the power structure that would attempt to control history. I mean, when you think about it, we have something very different that we hold in our hands, these 66 books that we call the Bible. When you compare it to Mormonism or when you compare it to the Quran, um, when you compare it to um, the, whatever the Jehovah's Witness translation is called, I can't think of it right now. Um, but yeah, the New World's translation, all of these translations and these texts were controlled documents. What we have was not controlled. What we have is a free transmission. And so there is no way that you can control these manuscripts who are, that are being written and sent to all these different areas. You would have to gather all of them and change all of them, but they are all consistent like nothing else that we see um, in, in antiquity. And so with these scholars, these pseudo-scholars, they would have us to believe something that's ahistorical because it lacks truth. There's no substance. It's all lies. So what built the church? Well, it started with the blood of our Savior, who is the chief cornerstone, right? And it continued with the blood of the martyrs. And so the story of many Christians throughout history are the same, right? Some went singing as they marched to be burned at the stake. They were singing hymns, right? Some of them were murdered in the most unbelievable ways, simply for believing Jesus is God and has risen from the grave, torn apart by animals for refusing to bow to their false gods. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and like Daniel, these, these believers refused, even if it meant their life was at stake. Others died for translating the Bible into English, and because of that, it has it become um, something that would impact the world, right, in a way that the world has never been impacted. It's like trying to block a layup and helping the other team score the winning goal instead. Um, these trials have served to advance the gospel of Christ in the hearts of millions. Um, Tertullian, who in the year 197, he wrote this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. And so years of pressure that it takes to form a diamond could not hold a candle to the years of trials and tribulation that has formed the church. And all of it, every single trial, every single tri tribulation has served to advance the gospel of Christ to the point that Christ and his gospel are still advancing today against all adversity. 
And so not even the gates of hell will prevail, like the scripture says. Paul said they have become much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is how the gospel spread in the most unexpected way, but isn't that just like God? To use the least expected of ways and in the end receive the maximum amount of glory, or should I say much more glory? And if the gates of hell will not prevail, how about the envy and rivalry of men we see in verse 15? If the gates of hell will not prevail, how much less the selfish and disingenuine that we see in verse 17? Paul sees his situation as God's will for his life in this moment. And according to Paul, not only does he see the advancement of the gospel and the change that he has for Christ are worth the affliction, he also acknowledges the fact that the gospel has the ability to go forth from the lips of those who weren't even called. Which brings us to our final heading, the joy of the believer. <clears throat> if you're a parent, you've experienced this when you spend all that money on that gift for your child and they tear off the paper and they're enamored and they're, they have all this joy from the wrapping paper and the, the packaging of the gift. How does a child have so much joy from something that simple? Affliction is entirely different. It's a different extreme. However, Paul's joy isn't rooted in the good that he got from God or that he would get from the world. His joy was measured by seeing God's word go forth and seeing Christ exalted. In Romans chapter 9, he would express this in a way that I never could. Paul's desire for God's people was unmatched, of course, aside from the cross. But he says in verse 3, <clears throat> For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The Hebrew Israelites would love that verse until you read 6 through 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who, flesh who are the children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so if Paul could consider being cut off from Christ, that his brothers might know him as Savior and God, as he says in Romans 9 verse 5, what effect could prison possibly have? The gospel has gone out, plus Christ has been made known, right, equals joy for Paul. His circumstance wasn't even a part of the equation. Actually, he was happy to be subtracted from the equation if that meant that God would be glorified in Christ. And so it just made me think about sports players that get injured, right? And I've never seen one, right, that was excited about being benched just so their teammate would flourish, right? Not as something that happens by chance, but actually designed for that purpose and necessary. Again, Paul finds joy in the midst of a situation that we can only imagine. Instead of being focused on what we might be led to believe is an, is an unfortunate situation, Paul is fulfilled and seeing his brothers grow into maturity at his own expense. We see this all the time. I would, it would be good for me. It would be better for me to go home to be with the Lord. I would rather be with the Lord, but it's better for me to be here with you for your own benefit. I'm practicing what he would preach in chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Their growth was more important to Paul. Because the gospel going out through multiple individuals is much more impactful than him on his own. 
They were courageous to speak. They were fearless in taking the gospel throughout the world. And their confidence wasn't rooted in Paul who was in chains, but the Lord whose providence is unbound. And so for Paul, that brought joy, joy in his chains, joy in the gospel, joy for Christ and joy for his brothers. Not only that, but the maturity that we see at the end of the section has also challenged me in the last four verses, 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And this isn't a new phenomenon, right? There's always been itching heirs and false teachers to scratch it for them. There's always been people who had an agenda with the church. There's always been people who see an opportunity to take advantage of others. There's always been competition in the pulpit throughout church history, right? And we all have our list of pastors that we would never recommend um, for some of the reasons are listed here in the text. But the other side of the coin is you also have faithful brothers who preach Christ in truth and in love. In Paul's day, I could only imagine they would probably have been preaching with so much passion, knowing that Paul was in prison for the very defense of this gospel that they would preach. Some preach from selfish ambition, sure, but others do it out of love, a love for their dear brothers and a love for their God. In the midst of persecution and weakness, lack of influence in the world, being a religion that others would scoff at, being looked down upon because, remember, Christianity was the religion of the poor and the unlearned. Yet they preached with boldness, they preached without fear, with love, and they preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it spread like wildfire. Just like trying to hold a beach ball underwater, it was only a matter of time before it emerged for the whole world to see. And as the gospel emerges, and as Christ is exalted, Paul says, and in that, I rejoice. Not just in the faithful brother or sister sharing the gospel, crazy part, but he even says whether in pretense or in truth. Pretense meaning even when something is done for the wrong reason, when someone is pretending, when someone's heart is deceitful, Paul doesn't condone it, but he says, was Christ proclaimed? Yes. Well, in that, I will rejoice. But how can Paul rejoice in the efforts of the wicked? Well, because he understands that the gospel is the power of God under salvation for all who believe, not the vessel. The vessel has no power. God can make the stones cry out. He can use anyone for his purpose. Consider the fact that he's using me right now. You see, the power is in the name of Jesus, not the vessel. And whether it's from the lips of the faithful or the faithless, Christ is proclaimed and the will of the Father is being accomplished. And in that, we rejoice along with our brother Paul. And so let me summarize this passage, Philippians 1, 12 through 18. It's about the providence of God, the centrality of Christ, and the joy of the believer. And this is countercultural on so many different levels because these ideas will be rejected by the more dominant ideas and behaviors of society. This is not the American dream or your best life now because our best life is to come. And so what does this passage teach us? Well, one, it teaches us that trials are to be expected and that they are ne not necessarily a bad thing. Um, we learn that trials are appointed by God. They are working together for the good because God's purposes are good. 
Trials also build our faith. It builds our trust and our confidence in God. Excuse me. And so how should we respond? We should respond by trusting in the Lord because he's in control. We should be content in all situations because he's in control. By being faithful no matter the circumstance because he's in control. And it should also help us to find our strength in prayer because we know that he's in control. Second, the purpose of our lives is to be vessels for the gospel of Christ. To preach the gospel and to exalt Christ. How should we do this? Fearlessly. And we should do it with boldness and against all odds. By trusting God to impact the world through both the good and the bad in our lives. And three, find joy in the end when the means is Christ. So in hardship or when things are going well, we ought to find joy in the end when the means is Christ. Or joy in the means when the end is Christ. Regardless of the vessel, if Christ is proclaimed, find joy in the means when the end is Christ. So have this mindset in your current situation. Have this mindset when you're at home and when you're at work. That the believer should at all times be joyful because God is in control at all times. And in every way, Christ is being exalted. And so the joy that never wavers is a joy that is rooted in Christ and recognizes that God is in control. And his will, his decree, his purpose is is perfect and it is fixed from the end to the beginning and it cannot be thwarted. Um, Because of this, like Paul, we can all say at all times and in every season and situation, and in that, I will rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for another opportunity to preach your word. Um, Thank you for your word conforming us into the image of your son. Um, Help us to always find joy in the means when the end is Christ. Um, In all situations of our lives, help us to find joy in all of those situations and seek to understand how this is bringing glory to your name. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, there it is. I hope that sermon was encouraging to you. Um, I hope it motivates you. I hope it reminds you of where our hope lies. I hope it reminded you of where our joy lies. Um, We ought to be content in Christ no matter where we find ourselves. We still fight, right? We still shout and we still stand for the Lord, but ultimately our hope is not in our shout. Our hope is not in the things that we ought to, um, that we that we're fighting for, and that we're hoping to get passed into law, right? That's gonna kind of right the wrongs of society. Our hope in the end is God's glory, and our joy is in His glory. And if it happens to be through our trials and oppression, may it be so. Well, anyway, this concludes episode eight of That Deity, though. Um, The main topic, providential joy in the gospel of Christ. Thank you for listening to That Deity, though. Wisdom and knowledge revealed.